friends, welcome to the show. My name is Tom Broback, and my guest today is Dan Fichter. Dan created Wanna Get Fast and coaches neurodynamic speed and strength for athletes out of Rochester, New York. I met Dan this summer at TFC Iowa, and he changed my perception on how to incorporate neurological-based principles in orthopedic therapy. If you ever had the chance to watch Dan speak in person, I highly encourage you to do so. Thanks for listening to the podcast, and make sure you share this episode with a friend or colleague who is interested in neurology. This summer, you kind of talked about magic versus science and kind of the difference between those two. And I really took that to heart because I think that uh, both in therapy and training, the things that we know uh, we're more comfortable with and the things that we don't know we're very uncomfortable with. Uh, But someone like you, uh, to have this perspective, you kind of have to go through a lot in life. Um, It can't have everything can't be easy. Everything can't be just given to you. You have to be able to dig deeper, whether it's from your playing career or from your coaching career. Uh, so to start off here, what led you to want to dig deeper uh, from a, a neuro perspective, anatomy perspective, a physiology perspective, performance? What led you to want to learn more? Um, I, I think that last statement, wanting to learn more, always. Um, I always say when Chris Corfus and I talk, we're, we're chasing Bigfoot. In performance training, um, there is no right way. We're always just searching and searching and searching because we really know nothing about this human body that we live in. Um, so I, I would say that that Jay Schroeder kind of started me off on the track of um, trying to understand human movement from a just from a different lens. Um, and then we had a chiropractor come into our facility who was very movement oriented but was very neural based and. Um, we spent a lot of time talking, um, playing around with different techniques in the gym, then go back into the therapy. And um, he, he's a brilliant guy. His name is Dr. Lucky. Brilliant guy. So I'm able to take my limited knowledge, I believe, of the nervous system and say, hey, what about this? Because I'd have these ideas and he'd be like, he could explain them from a, from a brain-based way. So then he started doing um, Carrick courses and he's, he's Carrick certified and all that. So I would just listen to him talk on the therapy side. And I'm like, and I know one of the questions you want to talk about is, is the, you know, is there a difference between therapy and performance? What, what I think is, is key is you can watch the therapy side and figure out different ways to implement it into your performance training. And sometimes you get more of a bang for your buck on the performance side than you do the therapy side. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to get people to run faster and jump higher and be more explosive. He's trying to get, you know, a certain part of the population in and out of their car without any pain at all. Um, so watching him work, um, collaborating with a lot of smart minds, um, just had an opportunity to learn from a lot of great people. Why are you so interested in the therapy side of things? Is it because of that connection you made that it helps performance? Or did you have situations where, you're, where you've uh, personally experienced benefits from uh, therapy or rehab? Um, you know, I, I think it's funny. You listen to all the top guys in the field and they talk and they talk about their own personal story. Mm-hmm. Um, my story has always been about developing speed. 
and, and being the fastest possible. Um, and I failed so many different ways training that I kind of figured out, okay, this is what my body needs to be fast. And that's when I started realizing, okay, this is highly individual based off of how you're built, how your brain operates and all these other things, rather than just how much weight you can lift and, and how much plyometric training you do or, or whatever. So, um, when Chris Corfus and I really started digging through the research and, and DB hammer and all these great strength guys and speed guys came into it, there's a tie to the therapy side for sure. I think early on, you know, when people would come out and start training on BOSU balls and saying, well, we were doing this in therapy, but they were actually getting a result. And then the strength coaches would go out and say, if you balance on this stability ball, you're going to have increased this and that. But that's not really what was happening. What was happening is, is you were activating your brain from a different stimulus. Mm -hmm. So it was giving you a different response. And then we kind of tangled that into the performance world and it kind of fell amok to where most strength coaches now won't even listen if you start talking about therapy, right? They're like, no, this is what we do. And rightfully so, because when we tried to integrate it 20 years ago, it didn't go well. It was like, let's balance on these stability balls and that's functional training, you know? So it's been, it's been a, an uproad type of thing, uproad hill, trying to get people to buy back into the neurological values of your system because that drives everything. It really does. We, we want to run fast, jump high, be out of pain. It's your brain that controls all that. On the flip side as well, I think a lot of therapists shut their brain off when you start talking about a strength coach or a sports performance coach. They just, they don't see that as value. And that's frustrating because I think both sides of the spectrum can learn a lot from each other. Um, and, and I think a lot of the great coaches and the great therapists learn from both <laughs> sides of the spectrum. So it, it's kind of funny that you mentioned uh, some, some coaches turn off when you hear therapy, because I think I see it on the other side. When I bring mm -hmm. up thoughts from, from guys like you, from Mike Boyle, Eric Cressy, things like that, people are like, oh, they're a strength coach. Like, this isn't going to apply to rehab. It's like, no, it absolutely does. It's about the principles. It's about, um, you know, how do you implement it? Why are you implementing it? And is it going to be effective for your population? So it's kind of funny you brought that up because I've thought about that the same way from the other side, that we need to listen more to our strength and performance coaches because they have a lot to offer the field as well. Absolutely. And, and when I talk to therapists and I, and I've done clinics for therapists and you know, there's some, you know, there's some real pompous people that will say, well, what's your degree and what therapy, what, and I'm like, listen, just listen to what I say. You go test it yourself. And then you tell me, I'm not interested in you telling me I'm smart or I haven't learned. I've learned something that you haven't learned that that doesn't bother me. What I want is people to understand that this human body and the brain is so much more fascinating than we give it credit for. It's incredible. Like some of the things that I've seen and I go back to, um, do you remember the machine called the ARP at all? Have you heard no, that? No, I've, I've never used that. Okay. So I used to have one, Jay Schroeder. Um, Jay Schroeder is the one that brought that to fame, him and Dennis Thompson, and they, they own ARP, the company. So I would watch some of the things that this ARP machine through electric stimulation could do to the body far away from where you said you had pain. And I always said to myself, I wish I could just do that with my hands or telling them to do a certain thing. And then that pain would go away. 
Mm-hmm. So kind of like when I first started using them, I'm like, geez, I, this is incredible. There has to be a different way because if I'm treating an area, like let's say I have an ankle sprain, I could be tr- treating my right shoulder on the ARP for my ankle pain. And people will be, there's no way. I go, okay, well, tell me why the pain is gone in your right ankle right now. And the electrodes are nowhere near your ankle. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, well, the stimulation is so hard up in your shoulder that you can't focus on the pain in your ankle. I'm like, okay. So I'd turn it down and I'd go, okay, now what's the pain like in your ankle? Well, it's way better. Okay. So when people see things like that and hear things like that, most people, like you just alluded to, shut off and they go, no, that's, I I don't have the answer for that. So it doesn't exist. I was like, wow, this is crazy. What, what's the potential of this? What could we really start to learn? Um, and then you start going down the rabbit hole in neurology. And as as you know, as you start going down this rabbit hole, it's, it's nuts. It's crazy. It, uh, it blows my mind because, uh, most therapists and, and maybe some coaches to some extent, they would rather do something they know that isn't optimal or doesn't work rather than try something new that they like don't know what the result is. So 100%. With, with the art machine, it's like, we don't know why it's working or if it works or if it works for everybody, but so many people are just kind of stuck in this. Well, uh, we know this doesn't work, but we're going to try it because people are more familiar with it. And that's really frustrating because that's not how we uh, would learn how we dive forward. Um, another thing that you said this summer, and I'm going to keep referencing a lot of your, your, your talk from TFC mm-hmm. Iowa is, uh, uh, with corrective exercises is we treat what we see or what we think we see. And with the nervous system, w- what you see is not always is what's present. And I think that's a hard concept for people to understand that what you see might not be what's actually going on in the human body. Yeah. So my, my presentation in Texas, when I go speak is going to be when the foot hits the ground, stuff happens, man, everything happens. Right. So Sean Sherman was the guy who would say, you know, when your foot hits the ground, you've got the ground hitting back. You've got every joint in your body going to deform in some way as force is coming in. So how does your brain perceive that? And we're just looking at the foot hitting the ground. Ooh. There's a lot more going on than we think we see. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Could, could you argue then, I might take this to the extreme, but like mm-hmm. I only care people are strong when they're standing or walking or moving. I don't care if you're strong laying down on your side or on your back. So a lot of my exercise prescription is in standing or on one foot or on two feet or, or moving around. Um, is that fair to say that... Uh, the better exercises are the one when your feet are on the ground, because that's when we want things to change. Yeah. I I would, I would even add to that, that once you begin to formulate a gait pattern, your brain goes through a different process. So it's going to either invite what you were doing from a therapeutical sense, or it's going to not like it. Right. So you can do a therapy on the table and everything presents itself the way, wow, that's great. Then you get up and your foot hits the ground the gait pattern begins, the corpus callosum starts bouncing back and forth, and we're starting to integrate movement, and it goes haywire again, because there's a perceived threat by the brain. So yeah, I believe therapy ultimately, and even performance training has to go from lying down to standing up and and upright moving and addressing our postural needs. 
in a kind of a similar progression, I usually start people for balance training. I start in single leg stance, but at some point I care about their balance when they're moving because that's when they need their balance and they need to be able uh, to operate in space. Would you argue as well that balance is better trained or assessed uh, in that dynamic movement pattern rather than stationary on one leg? Absolutely. And then the, the surface undulating has to change, right? So we're not always you, going to be. Can you explain that? Yeah. yeah, we're not always going to be walking on a perfectly straight and even and keeled ground unless we're running track and the track is perfect, right? We're walking on grass. We're walking on gravel. We're walking on mud. We're, we're walking in a bunch of different things. So, so why don't we address that when we're performance training or when we're, because that tactile sensation from your foot sets the tone for your posture, right? I always tell people our bodies are five times the base of our support, five times as long. So standing up is a freaking miracle. <laughs> There's nothing that you can see from an architectural design that could ever manage those numbers in proportion and then stand up and, and move, right? So we have to be able to adjust our body, our feet, our eyes to the surface we're going to be on. Um, and I'm not talking about standing on a BOSU ball. I'm talking about um, when you train, are we always in sneakers on flat ground? Are we sometimes on grass? Are we sometimes on the track? Are we sometimes barefoot? Are we, you know what I mean? So getting that different sensory input in through the feet. So you're looking for uh, surface variability rather than, um, you know, always barefoot or always on the grass or always on a BOSU. You just want the variability to test the nervous system and the body. So it can adapt when it meets those demands in life and in sport. Absolutely. You know, and it started with like, we always talk about as sprint coaches stiffness, right? And we would do for us, we would do altitude drops and different, you know, height of boxes and, and land and trying to have that stiffness quality through our tendons so we can get that elastic response. And I think that's, permeated through most of the speed programs you see around here is everybody's understanding the, the elasticity of the tendon is so important in sprint world. But the reality of the situation is, is your brain's going to set that stiffness too. So you have to address that. Well, how does that work? Well, if I put, and you'll see this on my Instagram, if you put different um, mats on the ground, just like rubberized mats that are in any weight room, and you put them in random order, and you're running over the top of them, and you have a heel striker that you're working with as a runner and they run across those mats where some of them they're stepping down, some of them they're half on it, some of it their heels on it, some of it's their ball, their foot's on the ground. You watch the stiffness of the foot. It's incredible. They have no stiffness, but the brain gives them that stiffness because it doesn't know where the next step's coming from or where the ground is. So it's, it's stiff. That's what we're trying to create when we run. So if you start to work that into your concepts of training, mm -hmm. now you're getting a reflexive component of that training through your brain. With that stiffness, how do you measure that, that that's improving over time? Is that like a speed output that you're looking for? Or what are now different we just ways? look at, yeah. at, at, his, at his or her sprint form, right? So okay. if I was watching mechanics, and yep. evaluating the mechanics of your foot when it hits the ground, 
right? There'll be a bunch of famous sprint coaches, including Corfus and Path, that will say, okay, so when the foot hits the ground, this is the position it should be in. This is where it hits compared to your center of mass. This is how fast your thigh is moving. But if you're just watching the lower appendage and if you hit the ground and your foot completely deforms and your heel ends up hitting the ground and your hip drops and all these bad things happen, let's start to give it drills where your body has to reflexively fire that stiffness component mm -hmm. to be able to run with a higher hip center of mass will be then underneath the body. So, so yeah, you're creating drills where there's going to be a certain element of failure in them, but your brain is learning, uh-oh. I better tense for the ground. Another issue related to stiffness is core strength and kind of related to balance as well. And there's a million different ways to measure core strength. Uh, how do you assess it? How do you train it? And what value do you see in making it a priority in your programs? Um, I, I hardly use the word core now. I, I, I'll just talk about the vestibular system. That's going to set your extensor muscle and your postural muscles. That's your core. So if you're constantly challenging your vestibular system, your visual system, and your proprioceptive system, you're training your core. How do you train your vestibular system for your football athletes? Moving up and down, moving side to side, moving with eyes closed, moving with eyes in one direction, um, being able to be on one leg, perturbations. Um, there's a bunch of different ways to train it. Um, rocking, rolling, somersaults, just getting a healthy and, for lack of a better word, robust um, vestibular system. Would you apply those same principles to therapy with someone with low back pain? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you have a bilateral presentation, odds are it's a spinal cord issue which can be controlled by your cerebellum and your vestibular system for sure. So that would lead me to eyes. I, I mean, can you converge? Can you do these certain things with your eyes that allow you to sense the periphery to create that stable core? Um, you know, and, and you've seen Franz Bosch's stuff with, with holding something over your head to create that stiffness in the mm -hmm. core. Um, now combine that with a vestibular challenge, right? So Tons of different ways to train it. And absolutely, as you train it, you are you can use it from a therapeutic standpoint. And I assume uh, on the same note, using it with concussion-based training, getting athletes back when they've had concussion, work on their vestibular system, work on their visual system. I would assume that's those are things you've implemented with those kind of athletes. Um, it, I'm going to say yes, but my, my work is more before they get a concussion. Okay. All right. So, right. so my less concussions because once you get a concussion to come in and, and talk a little about neurology and what your brain went through and the, the, the what part of your brain was affected by it. Um, my thing is, is if I can expand your periphery, if your eyes can converge, if you can start to sense danger around you, you're more able to protect yourself from a head injury. That's what concussions are. You can't see things. If you can see them, you don't get concussed. Absolutely. Going back to speed, if I talk to 100 different uh, speed coaches, I'd probably get 100 different answers. What is your main priority with speed training? 
for your athletes? Well, I, I would go to, to Tony Holler. I mean, we, when Chris and I started studying this stuff, it's you got to run fast to be fast, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got to make sure you have a mechanism in which you are timing people when speed is being accounted for, right? So there's too many people who say, yeah, I felt like I was running fast. Well, you have to know what it feels like to run fast. So you have to sh- start at a shorter distance. I, I'm going to be honest with you, with my high school kids, I hardly ever go past flying 10 meters. Hardly like I, I, you know, Chris and Tony and those guys will talk about expanding it out to 30 and 20 meters, whatever. We can't do that because until you really understand what speed is, there's no sense of stretching it out because you're just going to go into those compensatory patterns. And like, and I, and I, I always highlight this when our distance guys come down to train with us, yeah. So, so they'll come down, they'll run 30 in a row and they'll be like, it's the exact same time until you really shock their system. Fatigue doesn't play a role. It's understanding what it feels like to run fast and young kids too. They'll come down, they'll run the exact same time. All of a sudden I'll, I'll call it's a speed breakthrough. They get one. Now they understand that speed. So now we're challenging that aspect. Um, so, so I think running fast is a huge part of that. Okay. And then I think your posture and how your body interprets said forces coming into the ground is important. So if you're not prepared to run fast from a standpoint of threats that the brain perceives, joint actions are going to express themselves the only way they know how, and that's to protect you, right? So we have to make sure from a force absorption standpoint in every joint that we're safe to move about the cabin, right? So I think that's where square one and and signal six and all these um, isometric exercises come into play. We're trying to make it safe for the brain to let it fly. So you think those types of interventions would uh, have a higher influence on posture for running rather than most of the typical running drills you see coaches perform? Yeah. Um, If we're ever doing anything sub-maximal, we're going to put our hands over our head, right? So if you see the normal warm up, a skips, whatever stuff you're doing, mm-hmm. if we're doing that sub maximally, which all of it is, we're putting our hands over our head. I think, and I don't, I haven't heard Franz Bosch say this, but my theory is when your hands go over your head, you're tricking the brain into thinking you're running full speed, right? So, so now all those co-contractions of the spine are going to happen. So your lower half goes, uh-oh, I must be going fast. Prepare for it. Here we go. Why do you think that happens in the brain? Why? Because when those co-contractions happen, there's a potential of a threat coming in and you have to be prepared to move. Why do you think the hands over the head kind of simulate that max speed? Is there, is there a reason for that? Yeah, because most sprinters, when they're in a perfect upright stance running, there is a huge amount of co-contractions going through the spine, right? So if I'm just here nice and relaxed and my hands go up, I'm forcing that co-contraction. I don't need the speed to do that. Does that make sense? That does to me. Yeah. I like, I've never thought of it that way, Mm -hmm. uh, but I definitely want to start implementing that more and see what happens because, Mm -hmm. and then, and it forces, I would assume it forces that stiffness because you're changing your arm position. And that is, you know, an ultimate goal with running faster is working on that tendon stiffness on foot strike. 
Right. Plus now the, the focus and the concentration of what you're doing just got increased because in order to keep your arms up in this position, not like mm. this, not like this. Like when kids first start doing it, they're doing that. Like, uh, 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 <laughs> that. Right. Right. And now it, now they got to focus on it. That intent focus really. I mean, if you look at Sean Sherman stuff, the intention matters. It matters. I absolutely agree. When I first, I just got a free lap timer uh, this summer for myself and the amount of, of intensity and effort and focus that you have to do to run faster, it, it can't be simulated without some kind of timing. And that intensity, uh, it makes all the difference in the world because you can feel like you're running fast when you're going 85, 90% of your true max. So that it, it's deceptive there. But once you get a timer out uh, and once you start tracking it, yeah, I think it's a complete game changer. Um, but there's still resistance from coaches out there who don't time their athletes, who don't kind of rank record publish, who don't get them up to max speed. Why do you think that resistance is still out there? Um, it's probably from the same people who are saying that that submaximal work is going to make you faster. I, I mean, right. he, here's here's a simple scenario. Like regardless of the foundation of what you learn speed from, some people are Charlie Francis guys. Um, some people are Jay Schroeder guys. Some people are damn path guys. The fundamental thing behind all of what they believe in is maximum velocity is really important in training, right? Mm -hmm. So Jay, Jay was maximum intent, um, maximum training all the time. No days off. Just go, 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 go. Charlie Francis was, and I kind of like the way he explains it, 75% and below is okay. 75 to 85% is where you get hurt mm -hmm. 90 and over. That's where good things happen. So you rather stay out of this area in the middle, because if you're in it, you're going to get hurt. And to be honest with you, if you don't have a timing system, how in the hell, you know, you're in that system. Right. Right. So, so when we started timing people, it had to be 25 years ago, me and Corpus trying to start timing stuff. And it began to give us our drop-offs. Okay, we're training speed. That's another critical thing that people don't talk about. Well, how many reps am I doing? And, and if you guess and say, I'm going to do 10, what happens when the distance guys come down and on their 11th run, they run their fastest time ever, but they only did 10, so they never ran the 11th, so they don't know, right? Or what happens if the guy comes out on his second one, runs his fastest ever, his fourth one is really a drop-off. Why would I keep running him? He's going to get hurt or he's tired, one of the two. But we ran our fastest that day. We stimulated the nervous system. So I, I, timing serves so much more of a purpose than just seeing somebody get faster. It's a way to auto-regulate. It's a way to connect the mind with that's what it feels like to run that time. Right? Time is critical. It's critical. Like when we have guys in high school track outdoors trying to break 11 seconds in the 100-meter dash, you know what I do? I time them for 11 seconds and wherever they are on the track, I blow the whistle. Mm. They stop. I put a cone down there. Then they look at it and go, Ooh, I'm six yards from the finish line to run 11 seconds. Now they're starting to equate that distance with time. So you, timing matters. Absolutely. How do you balance then uh, speed training and strength training? I think once you start valuing speed 
it's really easy to get away from the weight room. And obviously, if you don't value speed as much, you're going to spend a lot more time in the weight room. How do you balance those two in your programs for your athletes? Okay, so this is where my opinion might be different than a lot of even my close friends. That's why I have you on the pod. I'll yeah. just hear it. I think that your strength training, to me, for a football coach, it's always fundamental. We're always working on getting stronger. Mm-hmm. What ends up happening that people don't look at is you dampen your nervous system as you get stronger. Most of the time you're getting stronger, you're working out of that bilateral stance. You're not in a gait or a tandem stance. Um, you're not on one leg. There's a lot of things that are taking you farther away from the neural drive of running fast. Okay. So I think you can do them, not maybe the same day, but I think that you, they can live together and coexist. If you are training your nervous system and your brain to enjoy those bilateral movements and you are, uh, I always say the unintended consequences of lifting weights, you have to be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. And there are. And no matter who you are, if you're the, the strength coach who's got bald hair and the goatee and you're that strength guy and you're yelling and screaming, and you got the medium shirt on in the weight room. That's great. But you know, the guy who's doing that should be in the NFL. He'd be that good if lifting weights was that important. Right. So you have to make sure you're marrying it to your nervous system, which ultimately is gait. Everything has to go back to gait therapy to performance fundamental Uh, you said that you have to enjoy those movements what do you mean by that so if i'm in the weight room we have to challenge the complexity and the novelty of a movement to get the brain to pay attention and then once you do that then you can see that transfer to what you want it to be whether it be a change of direction a speed output or whatever um you know, one of the things that I think Franz Bosch brought to strength training, you know, is he'll call it coordination training. Um, he took the simple power clean, hang clean, and, and put your foot up on a box because now you're giving the brain a target. I think he's splitting his feet, so now it becomes even more gait-oriented, mm-hmm. right? So you have to enjoy those processes because you can't just do the same old, same old. Mm-hmm. with the bilateral movements or you're paralyzing your nervous system. You just are. I mean, I, I do that example all the time. I show people a squat, I'll muscle test them. They're shut completely off because it's a bilateral movement. Brain hates it. Can't stand it. So what are I, you doing to counteract that? And that's the part where I think um, you can still have bilateral movements, but you need to be doing something to compensate for it. Before I listened to you, I thought, you know, okay, let's get rid of like all bilateral movements. Like this isn't no. ideal. Yeah. But if you have that compensation part uh, where you're doing a cross call pattern, you're doing some other drill to help offset the negative, because there's still benefits, obviously. Sure. I, that kind of changed my mind to like swing the pendulum back a little bit. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. we can implement this stuff, but what are we doing to offset the negative aspects that might be happening, especially to the nervous system? Right. So I, so you look at it like this and you explained it perfectly. So if I'm squatting, I'm the squat guy and and I take squatting out and all I do is run and I get really fast. There's two trains of thoughts. I'm never going to squat again because it doesn't matter. Or hmm, let's see what happens if I squat, change a few things in here to counteract that. Mm -hmm. And I still get faster, but now I'm stronger. 
this is great, right? So I, I think I want the entire toolbox ready to go when my football players play. I want them to be big, strong, fast, all of those things that that normal strength coach wants. But I also understand that I have to integrate some of this um, sensory inputs to create more of a, a friendly atmosphere for the brain or else you're going to turn into that muscle head that can't move. Right. And then that is the opposite effect of what we want with strength training. We want better movers because ultimately the sport, whether it's football, track, basketball, whatever, the sport rewards better movers. And we want our systems to improve that, you know, strength is important. It's glad we're increasing it, but at the end of the day, can you score more touchdowns, score more points? And if your training is adding to that, awesome. And if it's not kind of relook at the, the way you're doing things, uh, to make that ultimate goal, the ultimate goal. You know, it's um, Matt Bolay in this IP course. He also teaches another course, Posturology, which is fascinating. Um, but he talks about the guy who created Posturology, Dr. Bricot, is he always says, you have to get the muscles to play on your side. Mm. And it makes so much sense because yeah, we got all these big muscles and we got this and we're strong, but are they playing for you? or against you. Um, I used to say when I was younger, it's like you're driving a car with one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. You really, the key is take your foot off the brake and here we go. Right. Um, then the car is going to run cleaner. It's not going to burn out. The tires are going to last longer. So, I like that too. Your- I like that too. Another issue in uh, both on the coaching side and from a, a therapy side is when it in regards to research, there's mm-hmm. a certain camp that if it's not in the research, they're not going to do it. They're not going to try it. They're not even going to think about it. There's also another camp that uh, they probably don't look at the research enough. And it's like, oh, this one thing mm-hmm. worked for me this one time, but that doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody. What are your feelings about uh, incorporating research into what you do? Um, I always love to read research. Um, but I always like to talk about that research with, with really smart people in my field, because then, so you have the research labs in the rats where they are just all research driven, right? And they can't get out of it to make anything performance. Then they knock on the guys who go and try something that might be half of what the research said it was. And they're like, well, you can't do that. So a lot, like a lot of the neurologists around will look at what I do and go, well, do you, how do you know that's going to work? I'm like, well, I test it and retest it. I mean, mm-hmm. why wouldn't I? If it doesn't, then I'm going on to a different system. And it's okay if it doesn't work. It doesn't hurt my feelings. I just know I didn't get it right. I'm going to try again. If I'm not hurting anybody, what's this? I can do my own research, right? So you have to be able to marry these two together. Um, but you miss a lot if you're just following the research. And then mm-hmm. you're also going to miss a lot if you're just randomly doing things. Mm-hmm. You have to develop this perfect marriage. Um, like one of those guys, I, I don't know if you ever read any of Keith Barr stuff. I've seen some of the stuff. I haven't dived, dove in uh, as much, um, but I've definitely He's, heard the name. Yeah, I jump into some of his tendon research. It's, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. Now he's coming into the performance world telling people, okay, 
30 seconds worth of isometrics is helping for this tendon strength. And I'm going, Ooh, Jay Schroeder's isometric. Now you're starting to marry these, these practical applications to the research. And it's pretty cool. Um, and that's where you really go. Oh, wow. This is awesome. So I think there's a big difference between knowing the research and then picking it apart versus not knowing it and picking it apart. Um, I think, you want to be in that first camp where you're so well informed, you understand the limitations rather than just having this mindset that research is always limited and I'm going to have this negative viewpoint about it. And it sounds like from your experiences and the relationships you've made, you have really dove into what people are studying, what they have found, and you've tweaked it to the system that you've developed to help people uh, get stronger and run faster. Yeah, I, I'm a mutt. I've, I've learned from so many different people. And when somebody says to me, what's the one thing that you, I go, I, I can't tell you, I've learned from so many different people. Like if you think about Douglas Hill, who came up with be activated, right. And RPR is a, is a spinoff off of Douglas Hill stuff. And it's fantastic. And when I saw it, I called Chris, Chris called Cal and JL. And I'm like, this is awesome. But it's not the end all be all. It's a part of what makes one system work. Mm -hmm. So then you go on to something else. You got you got this reciprocal inhibition in muscles that holy cow, the things that it does. And then, but those people speaking on that subject, that's their end all be all. I'm not like that. I'm like, RPR is great, reciprocal inhibition is great, good-sided stuff is great. This is great. I'm gonna merge it all into. I don't know what I'm doing when you come see me. Um, you're going to tell me what I'm doing based off of your presentation, because I'm not going to, I'm going to treat the systems, not the symptoms. Another kind of brilliant thing you said this summer is every time you go on bench press, your numbers don't always go up, but that doesn't mean it's not working. So every time you try something new, like uh, square one or RPR, just because you don't see immediate change, at that time doesn't mean it, it's not working or it's not helping down the road. And I think too often with new interventions, if we don't see that immediate change, we turn it off, but it's kind of like lifting weights. You're not going to get uh, stronger or a higher, you know, maximum every time. But if you keep putting in the work and keep trying it and using it when it's appropriate, you're going to get the benefits from it. So I thought that was a brilliant thing. You, the, the comparisons you made uh, this summer. Yeah, it, it's a it's a product of going through a lot of different systems to be able to tell you what's going to work. And that mm -hmm. that took 20 years of me just going around to each thing going, oh, wow, that's great. But not staying there too long because I know this thing over here is pretty good, too. Let me see what this offers. But when you when you bring it all back to neurology. And you're talking about just therapy in general, I have uh, this right elbow yeah. pain. Right. And, and I've been doing regular therapy on the area where it hurts. And somebody came to me and said, well, can you fix my elbow? And I'd be like, well, what have you been doing? I've been doing this, this, and this. Well, we're not doing that. I can tell you that right now. Well, why? Cause it's not working. Mm -hmm. It's simple. I don't need research to tell you that. Right. So, so now you take a look at this right elbow hurts. All sensory inputs going to ultimately end up in my left cortex. Right. So what happens if I have a right cortical issue and I'm moving my right? Let's say that the 
I have a decomposition in my right cortical area. Mm-hmm. Left is too high. And I start moving my arm around, left's going higher. So it's going to make it worse. Right. Right. I have to find a way to stimulate the right side of my brain without moving this side to create left brain activation. Does that make sense? So I'm going to have to find a completely different therapy to help that. That might be moving on the other side. That might be one of those um, joint articulations on the other side of my body or on the opposite joint to create that balance of the brain that we need in order to remove your pain from your right elbow. So, you know, I always ask people, even if it's training, what have you been doing? Because if you're coming to me, whatever you've been doing is not working. Right. And the definition of insanity is doing the same things over and over and expecting different results. Exactly. Um, And I think the open-minded people who come to you and say, let's try something new and they're down for it. That's when you see like the real magic happen because they're open to it and you're giving them new ideas and what they're work, what they're doing clearly wasn't working. We see this all time therapy. It's all right, let's try something different. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't, but at least we're not doing the same thing and expecting different results. It's, it's really bizarre because in therapy, it's like, I remember a couple of the conversations I had with therapists when I was using the ARP machine. And they would say to me, well, I use STEM. Not like this, you don't. It's not a direct current with an alternating current wrapped around it, placed nowhere on the site of the injury. But they didn't hear that part. They heard, I use STEM, because all STEM is the same. It would be like someone saying, um, I want to increase my vertical jump, I squat. Okay, well, if you come to me, we're going to do reactive squats. No, no, I squat. Well, that's not a reactive squat. Or that's not... Um, an altitude drop might look like it, but it's not. So you got to really listen to the fine, listen to the, or read the fine print, right? Things have to be different. Patients will say too, I've tried therapy and it didn't work. And that is so broad and general. And it's like, what'd you do in therapy? How often did you go? Who was your therapist? Did you get a second opinion? Did you lift any weights? Did you try uh, any ease them? Did you try manual therapy? Like trying therapy is <laughs> it, that can mean a million different things. Right. And, right. um, it always frustrates me when, uh, people try therapy, whatever that means. And then they just go right to surgery. And it's like, if you're considering surgery, you should go to at least two different therapists and give it, it depends on the injury, but give it a couple months at least to see if you can change your symptoms, change your movement pattern, change your pain. But too often we just kind of rush to decisions like, Oh, I went once or twice didn't work. Um, so I get that frustration too, because I see that on my end where people try something and they don't even know what they were trying, um, to, to make a change with, with what they're going after. Right. And the, and the other issue I have that's out there too, is, you know, have you done these corrective exercises? And I'm like, okay, how did the name corrective exercise get its name? Like, is it, do you do them forever and then you see a change? Do you do them once and you get a change or should I keep doing them with no change? I mean, what makes a corrective exercise a corrective exercise? I would imagine that it corrects the issue that you have, but if you keep doing the corrective exercise and it's not working, it's not a corrective exercise anymore. So it's like this, you're chasing your tail. Um, But like in Sean Sherman's system, 
he will do an isometric exercise so far away from where you perceived your pain or where you perceived your lack of range of motion and boom, it's back. And that was your specific corrective exercise that fixed the movement issue that you had someplace else. So when you see something like that work, you go, Oh boy. So if I had a bad elbow and my corrective exercise was, I'm going to be doing elbow circles, but Sean just did right knee flexion to make your left elbow pain that that exercise get way better really quick mm-hmm. that's where you realize the power of neurology and it also just shows how much there is to learn and to know about the body the nervous system how we move uh as athletes and, and just as human beings um so much out there to learn thank you dan for taking time to jump on the podcast i really appreciate your insight to neurology and the success you've had with training athletes. Uh, Thanks for being an awesome guest. And I look forward to interacting with you down the road. And you'll be seeing this shortly in the IP class. Can't wait. All right. Perfect.